Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to Freedom of Species. Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. We are dedicated to raising awareness about issues concerning animals, which includes animal advocacy, activism, protection, conservation and, importantly, appreciation. Today we are broadcasting live from 3CR Studios in Melbourne, Australia. Live streaming and recent podcasts are available via the 3CR website. All podcasts are available from the Freedom of Species website and iTunes. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Emma Townsend. We are joined in the studio today by Andy Medic, member of the Animal Justice Party, to discuss the serious concerns on the increased usage of 1080 poison baiting. Andy's going to tell us what it is and and how we are currently using it. We will also hear from Adam O'Neill, who has been a professional feral animal eradicator in his time, as well as an author of a book titled Living with the Dingo. And that book has been described as a turning point in Australian land management and ecological thinking. He was part of a team of scientists who won a Eureka Prize a couple of years ago for their work on the environment. Adam will connect the dots for us, showing 1080 is a big player in the decimation of ecologies, which includes the alarming decline of our koala populations in southeast Queensland. This is Lawrence Pope, Victorian Advocates for Animals. You know, it doesn't matter where I am, around Australia or across the globe, people ask me the same question. Why don't we have programs like 3CR's Freedom of Species? Why don't we have independent radio? Not radio that's a puppet of the millionaires and the billionaires, but radio that reflects the real concerns of people like you, the very salt of this great country, from Warrnambool to Wonthaggy, from Malakuta to Kootamundra. 3CR, they're kind of cats, they're for the bats. That's independent radio. That's freedom of species, not the enslavement of species. I said the freedom of species. You know what to do. Donate to independent radio and warm your heart while you're cooling the planet. This is Lawrence Pope of Victorian Advocates for Animals and 3CR wishing your species all the best. I realise I'm a little bit rude. Thanks, Kate Gracie, for joining us today to be in the power seat of the panel and push the buttons. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's always fun to join you on the panel. And yeah. don't don't push my buttons, though. Oh, never. <laughs> <laughs> and um, a big welcome and thank you for making time for Freedom of Species today, Andy. 
thank you for having me here. Now, Andy, what took you on the path to joining the Animal Justice Party and campaigning against the use of 1080? Well, to, to cut a long story short, um, my family and I, my wife and, and our two children, we've been involved with different types of animal rescue um, and welfare in the region we live in, which is the western region of Victoria, for somewhere around about 20 years in different ways, shapes and forms, uh, involved with a different couple of different groups, smaller and larger. And it just seemed to make sense to me after looking at the situation where the status of animals in this country and indeed around the world, it has to change. And to me, it just makes sense. The only way that is going to change is through a political way. We have to be able to elevate the, the status of animals in this country to give them the rights that they actually need. One of your campaigns is about 1080 that you're here to talk to us about today. Lots of people have never heard of 1080. Can you just tell us what it is and and what a Schedule 7 poison is. Okay, well, again, quite briefly, the history of 1080 poison, and 1080 is just, it's the catalogue number that was given to a manufactured poison called sodium monofluoroacetate. Now, many, many years ago, fluoroacetates, and, and still to this day, are found in different types of naturally occurring species of plants, but that is a, a naturally occurring poison, and native species within the different countries that these plants occur generally will avoid those plants because they're bitter tasting and they know that they're not healthy for them. Now, what's happened is is that um, samples of these plants were taken in back into Europe from the different places, and we're talking in the 1800s where this began to happen, where different colonisations with um, things like sheep and cattle were happening around the world. Samples of these plants were taken back to the countries in Europe, and in particular Belgium, where a Belgian chemist, somewhere around about, from memory serves, it's around about 1869, he used a process, a chemical process, along with silver to actually artificially manufacture the first version of this, but it was obviously very expensive. So that sort of got shelved. Later, and before the outbreak of World War II, again, this is all history that I've gotten from different places and tried to verify in different ways, that the German army actually recontacted the same chemical lab in Belgium and asked them to reinvent this particular chemical as a chemical warfare weapon. And they were able to do this rather successfully and cheaply. However, the hierarchy of the German army decided that it was too poisonous and too dangerous for their troops to handle. So again, it was shelved. So they wanted it to kill people, to Absolutely. kill the enemies. But Absolutely, okay. because, because yeah. basically um, it was um, soluble and had a delayed effect. So it was, it was ideal for things like putting into water supplies and stuff like that. Then again, and I'm probably cutting out a lot of history here, it, it reared its head again somewhere in the 1950s, I think somewhere around about 1957, as a rat poison in wide use in the United States and then right throughout Europe, etc., etc., and its use quite became quite widespread. But over a period of time, people began to see the detrimental effects it, wasn't having, it was having not just on the so-called pest species like rats and, and other rodents, but on their own animals because their animals were dying. And it's progressively then saw it being banned right throughout Europe. It, every country in the EU has banned it many years ago. And there are, strictly speaking, if you were talking in the wider sense, it's only Australia and New Zealand continue to use it in bulk numbers. We are the largest users of this chemical in the world, Australia and New Zealand combined. Okay. 
There are some states in America where they still use it in minor forms in that they might put it on um, what, they, what they call a, a cattle collar. They'll put it in a, a bait on a collar on, a, on a, a cow so that wolves don't attack the cow because the wolves have been able to learn that they don't, you know, if they go and attack the neck and they consume this, they're going to die. So they've tried to tend to stay away from it and they use it as a deterrent there. But it is only manufactured by one company and that's the Toll Chemical Corporation. Why is it used? Why would we want to use it here? Can you tell us the context in, in why? It's a cheap form of poison. And it is highly effective. It is highly effective. It will kill everything that it comes into contact with. And the spiel that we get from government departments is that this is highly safe. We've got a lot of regulations surrounding its use. We can control it very well. And some people will even go so far as to say, look, it only kills target species, which, of course, is a load of rot. It is, it is massively effective. It, it kills very efficiently. But what it does do is it kills quite slowly and it kills very, very painfully. It has a delayed effect. And if you like, I can go into what that might be, but some people might find it a bit squeamish. Yeah. It's definitely not humane. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the RSPCA like, said that. I mean, all yeah. animal groups worldwide Absolutely. say it is not humane. It is torture. We use it to eradicate species that we consider as pests, and we all know pest is a fluid term because, you know, it's basically whatever animal is coming across interfering with our own agenda. And if our um, property is one with sheep and cattle on, can you tell that 1080 is tempting to use because it's it's seen as a... Well, the, the largest yeah. predators of, of sheep and cattle in Australia are dingoes. Occasionally, and you'll have foxes involved in this sort of thing as well, but that we use it um, to mainly as... Uh, and, and the two... One of the the, um, the, the, the the brand names, if you like, that you'll see most often on the signage is Fox Off. And they tend to be the ones that go after, like, you know, the spring lambs and all that sort of stuff, and, 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 and so they go for that. And they're the, the cattle industry and the sheep industry are the two largest users of it in that respect. And they will use, um, in most instances, what will be used is what's called a live bait, which is a meat bait, which can be um, a, a dried beef, sort of a square type situation, or liver, which is tempting to both the fox and the dingo. And they'll bury them under the surface mm-hmm. and they'll then dig those up. But, mm-hmm. but the problem that you have, and in particular with foxes, is that they, they're not polite creatures who will then sit there and go, oh, look, this is a lovely little meal for me here, I'm going to eat this, and conveniently die on the spot then and there. They cachet these baits, which is to say that they pick them up and they'll take them and get more and bring them to certain areas. They'll spread them about. It's not unheard of, and indeed it's quite common, to find baits several kilometres outside of the actual baiting area. Now, these are taken by foxes and dingoes, but they're also taken by things like native birds who pick them up. They fly with them in their claws, predatory birds, and in, and in some instances carrion fowl as well. And they move them outside the area. And this is where we have a bit of a struggle as well because we begin to see that animals, domestic animals in urban areas, are dying as a result of consuming baits. And this is also a national health problem because you have situations where you might put your two-year-old child out in the backyard to have a bit of a play around thing. It's perfectly safe. But if you live anywhere within a five-kilometre radius of a national park, it's quite plausible and it has happened where baits are found in the backyards they've been taken there usually by birds have dropped or by foxes carrying them in because foxes are also moving into urban areas we're encroaching upon which traditionally there might have been buffer zones we're encroaching on these areas with housing estates and foxes are becoming very urbanized 
They don't mind going through a rubbish bin every now and again. Yeah. Does it does it kill that? Uh, does it have the potential to kill an animal that's that's eating the carcass of an animal that's died from it? Absolutely. What you're talking about is what's termed secondary contamination. That yes. Yeah, and and it is highly. A lot of the deaths of of domestic animals are actually as a result of secondary contamination, and indeed. It's usually the death of non-target species occurs in that respect. Fox can consume the bait, fox dies. A thing like a quoll can come along and have a bit of a nibble on the carcass because quolls are, you know, mm-hmm. they like a bit of meat. And the poison can stay live in that carcass for an extraordinary long period of time dependent upon weather conditions. Let's talk about where it's actually used because it seems to be used in, you know, on large landholding properties. So while dogs can't attack the sheep and the cattle on their property. And I think we should say from the outset, we, you know, we, we're in no way belittling the suffering of these animals in um, speaking out against 1080, and mm. we're by no mean belittling the devastation and the emotional trauma mm. that this can ha- have on a, a property owner. I mean, mm. it, you, you, it, to stand in those shoes, it must be, you know, a pretty horrible place to be as well. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and look, it's... um. Livestock is not just dying as a result of, of, of predation from predators. There are several instances in, in New Zealand particularly because they're, they're, there's a massive campaign in New Zealand to get this, this poison banned. And so there's a lot of information out there coming out of New Zealand now because they've got a lot of problems surfacing. And there's a, a hell of a lot of instances that have been documented where cattle like dairy cattle and sheep have actually died themselves from 1080 poisoning because an animal has died on the land and the residue from that carcass has stayed in the grass because that's what it does. It stays within the cell structure. And so these animals consume the grass and then they die themselves. And they also die because aerial drops are huge in New Zealand. And indiscriminate. Absolutely, completely indiscriminate over water supplies, etc., etc. And a cow can come along and one of, the, one of the massive forms of baiting that they use over there is a carrot bait because they kill a lot for deer. So these carrots, you know, they get carried out, they, they drop in an indiscriminate area and you'll have a cow consumes a carrot. Yeah, and there's a hell of a lot of instances of that happening. Mm. But just come back to that point, there, there is a, uh, it's a bit of a misconception to be thinking that um, we're wholly and solely baiting in these areas that are, are large landholdings, and, and we are, but we're baiting in places that are so close to urban areas. Just here in the state of Victoria, we're baiting in national parks on a regular basis if not yearly, at least six monthly. And I can give you an example. The Great Otway National Park is baited regularly. The Anglesey Heath is baited for three-month periods every six months. And, and this is an ongoing program. And, and, and I guess this is what is annoys me about this. The Australian public are sold this furphy that this product works. It's killing everything, and it does. It's highly successful. It kills a lot. But it's not getting rid of the problem. If it gets rid of the problem, why do we have to continue to bait and bait and bait and bait? Surely if this system was working, we wouldn't be doing yes. this. Yeah, it's an interesting point, isn't it, Andy? Because recently I had um, I, I went on a camping trip to Cape Conran National Park, which is an absolutely beautiful part of the world. And I also went to Cape Lip Trap. And I know at Cape Conran they have uh, fox baiting control fox they call it fox control mm. they have the signs everywhere it's very hard if you if you're the average joe which is me and uh, and you're enjoying such beauty and you see you know lots of environmentalists and people and you're thinking they must be doing the right thing and and all their signs and uh 
publicity brim with pride that they've had this program going on for like 10 years or so and look at the beauty that surrounds you as a result of, um, you know, things like the baiting program. Mm. Um, and if you didn't know, you wouldn't question it really, would oh, you? Oh, no, no. Yeah. And, yeah. and this whole, that, that's an interesting word that you use there, control. Um, we have no control over this situation. There's, it's absurd to think that this is actually controlling the problem. The research has shown, and, and there's been a number of, of different institutions and individuals over the period of time, at least over the last 10 years anyway in Australia, that you, you aren't actually controlling these populations. What you're actually doing is creating a time bomb, and in particular with dingoes, because dingoes operate on a, a, a strict familial hierarchy in that you have an alpha male and an alpha female. And once you poison those two, those two control the population of that individual pack. And they do it by a number of means, and probably the largest of which is if if another male mates with a female outside of that alpha situation, then that alpha female will kill the pups yeah. that are born. Really? Yeah, it's very, very strict. And, 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 it's, and, but, and it sounds awful, but it's a natural environmental balance. It keeps the pack size under control, and it doesn't just keep the pack size under control. What it does is it ensures the viability of the food systems available because this is all about natural balance and, and the biodiversity working in sync. When you destroy that, they breed indiscriminately, and then there's no teaching, if you like, of what you can eat, where you can yeah. eat it, and then the moving on. And that's what we move into situations where then other native species come under threat. It's a furphy to say that it's it's a control. It's a furphy. And we're going to hear more about that furphy because we're going to now go to a little chat I had with Adam O'Neill, who mm. is one of the scientists you refer to. I had a chat with him via Skype earlier. Adam... He's going to talk us through on what actually happens when we do 1080 bait. Um, we persecute the dingoes, as you, as you say, which are our apex predator. And he and his fellows are urging us to afford careful attention to the protective ecological frameworks we corrupt when we do bait. So this is part of a larger interview, which I will air later on. Something's wrong. It's you. Our ecology is just going down the toilet at a rapid rate. We, you know, biodiversity declines are rampant right now. Mm-hmm. And the only uh, strategy that we have is to continue to kill predators, which, you know, in my opinion, is totally counterproductive. We should be looking after predators. It's so ironic, this situation. I was, I was listening to a radio show the other night where a panel was talking about, you know, about top conservationists were talking about triage and the prioritisation of species to be saved and how funds should be allocated. And they talked about iconic species and flagship species, but they didn't really mention, you know, our keystone species, which is the dingo, which has been recognised as an apex predator and again recognised on a global scale as the most important animal in the system. And here we are in a situation in Australia where we spend more money trying to wipe them off the face of the earth than we spend trying to save all of the other species combined. And we wonder why the ecology is going down the toilet. We've really got to look at scientific evidence 
that's available to us and act on that. Let's go back to your question about uh, changes in behaviour and how that affects koalas. You know, as a result of persecution or control, when you disrupt social structures in dingo communities, you end up, you change the demographics in the population, you end up with a lot of uh, young, it's, populations become dominated by young dingoes, which are uneducated and fairly desperate. They're dislocated from society, they have no family. And um, one of the first things that disappears in these situations is territorial behaviour. This is very important in the uh, koala saga because territorial, most people think territorial partitioning is like a, a boundary that they, uh, and an area that they monitor and, uh, and keep for themselves, a large area of land. But in fact, territorial behaviour is based on uh, resource management. So in the case of koalas, say you've got a couple of hundred acres of tallowwood in a forest somewhere, which is good fodder for koalas. So there's a lot of koala activity and there's a lot of koalas there. In stable situations, you'll have one dingo that'll recognise that activity as a, as a prime resource for him and his pack. So he'll scent mark that koala colony and guard it with his life. And, uh, and as soon as that disappears, as soon as that you lose that hierarchical structure within dingo communities, no one's got territory anymore, so no one is guarding the resources. So you get uh, an influx of predation. Like, let's just, you know, that colony of koalas is now open slather to every predator in the, in, the, in the area. No one's guarding it anymore. So that's one aspect that's affecting koala populations. Territorial behaviour. Uh, it just vanishes. As soon as you start persecution, that, that just goes out the window. There's no more of that. Hyperpredation, that's... Uh, that's a difficult one to quantify. We know that it happens. It's well recorded. And it's basically killing, killing, killing without seemingly any reason. It's an instinctive behaviour, a natural instinctive behaviour in canids to do this. And I think what curbs it is um, its hierarchical dominance. And again, it comes down to resources and with dogs especially, it's jealousy, you know, you know, you can't keep doing that because this is mine. So, you know, the hierarchy pull it up and they educate the young ones not to act instinctively, but to act intuitively. And to explain further how this works, I mean, it's difficult, <laughs> but when dingo communities stabilise and they develop packs and groups, with, you know, very close ties there, they start to, uh, their instincts are overtaken with intellect. I mean, they develop an intellect through thinking about other things. You know, they're not just concerned with instinctive killing and, and, and driven by desperation. They're thinking about other things like their competitors, about their resources, about their territory, and about the, uh, the things that are going on within their own family, the hierarchical setup, you know, who, who, who gets to... Uh, you know, be at what level in this community. So they, they really, their brains go into a different gear and they start to develop intellect. So, you know, the instinct gets overtaken by intellect and, uh, and then this is, uh, this is how it works in stable situations. Now, the other aspect, we've talked about territorial behaviour, oh, hybridisation. Okay, hybridisation is... Uh, 
I guess, again, it hasn't really been quantified how it actually comes about, but we know that it does. I mean, there's been studies on this, and again, it's correlated with persecution. So, you know, when you, and also uh, recognised as a dismantling of social structures in social complex predators, when you start dismantling these social structures, you get a lot of desperate, you know, you get, well, for a start, you get overbreeding because with dingoes and wolves and coyotes, there's, there's a hierarchy that dictates who has pups. So in, in a normal, stable situation where you've got a, uh, a pack and the only one bitch in that pack is going to have pups. And uh, if something happens and one of the other subordinates does conceive, then the alpha bitch will kill those pups. And then the subordinate aids her in the raising of her pups. So basically, you know, say if you've got seven bitches in a pack, only one is going to breed. This is all governed by hierarchical dominance and social stability. When you lose that, you know, you haven't got one bitch producing pups, you've got seven. And they start having their pups at a very young age. So they haven't got family support. They don't really know how to raise their pups. They just they don't even know what's going on. You know, so they have these pups. They become too much for them. So uh, you know they're chased off at a very young age, and they and they've got to fend for themselves. And so then this continues. And these pups, because they don't have any uh, ties to family or territory, they're just uh, desperate individuals looking for companionship. And this is where rather than you know, guarding their territory and keeping domestic dogs out, they're going to welcome a domestic dog and, and take it on as a friend and then breed with it. And then you've got this other problem of then dingoes only have one estrus cycle per year, but domestics can have two or three. So then you get, you know, this adds weight to the uh, to the overabundance problem and the overpredation problem. So you've got a, uh, a population that's overbreeding all of a sudden, dingo populations are reclassified as wild dogs. But what they don't understand, and, and I mean, wild dogs do function exactly the same as dingoes. If they've got enough dingo gene in them, there's no difference to their ecological function. What makes the difference is persecution. So all of these populations of wild dogs that exist now that have been created through persecution can actually go back to a purebred strain of dingo, not 100%, but natural selection if they're allowed to restabilize and develop social structures again, they will eventually, you know, that dog gene will get weeded out of the system through natural selection because you've got superior ancestral genetic lines that are suited to the environment. So they're going to be selected for before the domestic dog genes. But as long as the persecution keeps up, then, uh, you know, this problem is just exacerbating and we're, and we're actually diluting the gene pool rather than strengthening it. There is the issue of meso-predator release. Can you comment on that for us? Yeah, well, that's also evident in southeast Queensland now. There's a big uh, increase in uh, not only cats and foxes but in herbivorous species, pet species like pigs and deer. And, uh, yeah, because their hunting behaviours change and uh, they haven't developed the skills to tackle these sort of animals. And uh, foxes and cats are generally addressed through territorial defence. So when you haven't got territories, you haven't got this, uh, you know, this mechanism that, that uh, comes into play where dingoes are, have a very strong influence on cat and fox numbers. Yeah, so we've got, you know, it's a multi-dimensional problem 
that, you know, this persecution is creating. You know, we've got mesopredator release, which is impacting severely on small mammals. We've got hyperpredation from overabundant, you know, crazy wild dogs that are just, uh, and it's not just koalas, you know, kangaroos are in decline, platypus are in decline, and, uh, you know, I hate to imagine what else, you know, the species are sort of unseen, but there's, uh, just in the last decade, there's, uh, there's been a major decline in ecology generally in southeast Queensland and northern New South Wales. And it's all driven by persecution. 3CR, radio that's independent, progressive and making a difference. You are listening to Freedom of Species, Animal Advocacy on the Airwaves. And we just heard part of an interview that I held with Adam O'Neill via Skype a few days ago. Adam O'Neill is an independent researcher, award-winning scientist and author of Living with the Dingo. Um, He paints a, a pretty dire picture as to... The usage of 1080 contributes to destroying our dingoes, who are our apex predator. I mean, Africa has the lion. We have the dingo in Australia. So why aren't we uh, respecting this predator? We're almost we're shooting ourselves in the foot, as it were, with using 1080 bait because, I mean, a, as far as I can hear, the dingo is looking after our ecology pretty much for free. You know, if if we want, if they're stable dingoes, and if we allow them to become stable dingoes, they will look after the ecology very well. Have you got any comments on that, Andy? It's um, it's pretty sobering stuff to listen to, isn't yeah. it? it? It really is. And I'd just like to point out at this point, Adam O'Neill has, has been researching this topic for ten years or more. This is not something that. This guy has just like, oh, well, you know, I'm seeing this problem. I'm going to have a look at it. And these are conclusions I draw from a quick internet search. Hmm. And he's not alone, right? There's a number of highly eminent people out there, academics, that have been involved in this field for a long time. And they've all independently drawn the same conclusions. And, And they've drawn the same conclusions because the evidence is exactly the same, no matter which way you want to look at it. And one of those, for instance, is Professor Arian Wallach. Her work into the research in the dingo as the apex predator in Australia is second to none in this respect. Mm. Okay, and, and, and Adam, Adam does work with her as absolutely. part of the Dingo for Biodiversity project. Absolutely, yes. yep. Yep. yep, yep, absolutely. And mm. and she even talks about in some of her research how what we've actually done, so far as the fox is concerned, we've created a fox explosion in population because what we've done is we've removed the dingo as the apex predator from a particular area. And that's left a, an environmental vacuum into which the fox has then moved and bred in large numbers. So we've, in, we, we've removed one so-called problem and created another straight away. Mm-hmm. Because the, and the, this is research that's also backed up, I mean, independently here in Victoria by Professor Ernest Seeley. They've, all these guys have all drawn the same conclusion. And that tells us something about that. It is making the problem worse. I mean, the fact that we have to up the ante every year, as you were saying before, before, you know, keep on baiting, keep on uh, living in this kill-kill cycle. Mm. There, There is a better way. Um, and it's interesting, it doesn't have to be a divisive issue. I can imagine, you know, some koala advocates out there now or, for instance, where the northern hairy-nosed wombat is, these endangered species groups that may, you know, you're in a desperate situation. You sit, you're sitting there and you're seeing this devastation. You'd pretty much want to take out uh, any change quickly to protect 
that individual species. Mm. And that's a noble cause. We're not saying that's not. But definitely these guys um, shed a light on that there's a much better way that we can Mm. um, proceed forward and manage our our land as we... um, you know, we, we have to change something mm. because it's not working. I think we might just... Have you got something to add, Kate? I yeah. just wanted to ask, Andy, is it possible that the demise of the dingo population is the bigger problem than the feral, the feral cat issue? People are always blaming the feral cat for... Or the, the domestic cat, even, for uh, our biodiversity crisis. Could it be that it's actually the demise of the dingo population is, 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 is a greater problem? Oh, it works hand in hand. There's no doubt about it. The dingoes will control the cat population. Right. Because yeah. it, they recognise that this is, that can be a food source. Right. So it, when you, and, and Adam said it very well there, you know, when, when you re- get rid of that familial control, you, these animals will just go berserk, you know. Basically, they breed and breed and breed, and then you have a problem, and then you get, get breeding with other dogs that are, you know, are brought into the pack because they're looking for companionship, and then they breed with it and that sort of thing. And feral cats then, you know, they're in the same boat. You know, mm. they move into these particular areas. Right. If you have a properly controlled um, situation with dingoes, you're not going to have as large a feral cat problem. Right. But we do move into an area then. The feral cat problem is really a control at a council level as well. And I think we need to look at state laws and federal laws where domestic cats are concerned in that you should not have people allowed to own a cat that is not dissexed. Your general population should not be allowed because they are a problem for smaller native species, ground-dwelling and tree-dwelling. Birds in particular suffer greatly. And we need to look at that. And that, that, is, that is a broader um, argument there. But in my opinion, we do need to have them dissexed. And because you have a situation where you have, you know, you might go down to your local fish and chip shop and you have a sign up that says free to good home, mm. you know, and there's 15 kittens there, you know, and, and not all of them are going to find a home. And people just go, oh, well, you know, it's all right. I'll just go and dump them out in the bush. And, and so you have a creational problem there. So if you legislate that this is what the new situation is going to be, you go a long way towards eradicating that problem. Mm-hmm. So a dingo is not if, – if the dingo population was a healthy population, would they be across the length and breadth of Australia? Oh, I believe so, yes. They would be? Yeah. So that, so that wouldn't – it would mean that, that that would then address that cat population – well, it's it's, across, it's across not Australia. a golden bullet for it, but it's certainly part of the equation okay. and, and a large part of the equation as well. Yeah. Okay. Um, there was actually a new study published in Wildlife Research that found, quote, contrary to expectation, the relative abundance and activity of feral cats increased in the cull sites. So the, the, the population's increased as... Um, you know, as um, well, we heard about before, yeah. even though the numbers of cats captured per unit effort during the culling period declined. So this is actually from the Dingo for Biodiversity website. Um, in an interview, lead author Billy Lazenby explains that if you remove a dominant individual, you're likely to get a few subordinates coming in to check out the territory that's been freed up. I mean, that's pretty basic, mm. isn't it? And he goes on to say, we must let go of the outdated notion that killing introduced animals is going to reverse biodiversity declines. And I think this is probably a good segue to go into another little brief word from Adam. There's another good story here that I think is probably fitting. When I first started researching my book, I was living in the Gold Coast hinterland at the time, and I got onto a guy from Griffith University that was studying a remnant population of 
Potteroos in a bit of coastal heath just behind the Coolangatta Airport. And uh, he did a predator scat survey in there. I mean, his main interest was in the Potteroos. And actually, it was one of the last uh, populations in the state, very endangered animal. Anyway, he did a predator scat survey, and it was all dingo scats in there. I mean, this is right on the edge of the suburbs. I mean, this coastal heath come right up to the bitumen, and then across the bitumen, you know, there was a big bank of houses, house plots, and, and right on the suburbs, these dingoes were living, right at the back of the Coolangatta Airport. No one ever knew they were there. He didn't even know they were there until he started, you know, looking at these uh, potteroos. So he did this scat survey, and he got them analysed, and interestingly... 70% of the dingo's diet consisted of domestic dogs. <laughs> and this, this was phenomenal. Just, uh, I mean, it was a snapshot survey. It might have been just a particular incident where the whole population started eating domestic dogs. But I became very interested in this, and I actually rang the council. Was in the suburb was called Tugan on the Gold Coast. And to, to inquire as to how many domestic dogs were disappearing from this neighbourhood. And uh, and they couldn't find anyone, any reports of anyone losing dogs in that area. I think there was only two over the last two years or something, you know, through the uh, course of this study. And we discussed it and we sort of thought, well, it sort of makes sense because, you know, people that responsible dog owners aren't the sort of people that are going to let their dogs go running in the scrub anyway. So the sort of dogs that are going to end up running through that scrub are going to belong to people that, aren't really going to, you know, they're probably unregistered and the people aren't going to report them if they just don't come home. So I guess this highlights a couple of things. The fact that when dingoes stabilise, you know, they're unseen. No one even knew they were there. And I also knew of other populations right in the, on, in the suburbs on the Gold Coast, back of the, the Coomera footy oval for one. Yeah, so a couple of points. They virtually become invisible when they're stable. And they protect our environment by mopping up all of these domestics that run out of the suburbs and go into the scrub. So, and in my opinion, this was the only reason that those potteroos were still surviving there, was because the dingoes were also surviving there and left to their own devices. And no one was worrying them and they weren't worrying anyone else. And this would have been typical of virtually all of the environments throughout the Sunshine Coast, Gold Coast, Brisbane suburbs, there's always, you know, dingoes have always been common through these areas. And as I said before, particularly on the, on the urban fringe because, there's, you know, you can't bait there and there's no pastoralism. So these are like biodiversity hotspots because our apex predator is looking after those systems. And uh, sadly, you know, these were the... These were the uh, the areas that were hit hardest with, with the BD assault. And now we're in this situation where we've got constant problems with wild dogs, overbreeding, hyperpredation, no territorial behaviour, and, uh, and then the way we react to that is to continue and increase the, uh, the persecution, the control. And particularly now it's going to get really bad since uh, this study came out where up 400 radio-collared koalas, a hundred were killed by wild dogs. So I can only imagine the reaction from the government to this is just going to be to increase persecution, you know, intensively. 
which is very, uh, very sad because it's going to drive this system, you know, the ecology is just going to continue to spiral downwards. I don't know. I don't know what to do. It's frustrating. I mean, personally, I like to see an education campaign out there, you know, just to acknowledge that this is a strategy that we could try somewhere, just in, you know, even if you tried in one region and see how it goes. Let them stabilise and educate the public so that, you know, they know that there's going to be a couple of problems in the process of uh, restabilisation and just, uh, and maybe rather than have control guys there, employ dog behaviour experts to address problems and maybe develop a guardian dog department for pastoralists to help them with alternative methods to address the problem of wild dogs until they transition back into a stable state. That's what I'd like to see happen. I think you'll find that if you let dingoes stabilise, I think you'll find that the koala populations will start recovering immediately. First of all, because territorial behaviour happens almost instantly. You know, it's like it's like if you've got a say, say you've got six dogs in someone's backyard, and they're all sort of youngsters. You know, chickens. Yeah, I've got two. <laughs> yeah, I think she just laid an egg. <laughs> it's very convenient. She lays it in the she lays it in the dog kennel on the veranda, so I don't have to go far to pick it up. I'll have to go and chase them away if they're making too much racket. Like, I've got a dingo scent post only 100 metres from here at the end of my driveway. You know, my dog goes out there every morning and checks it out to get the daily news. And it's only it's only 50 metres to my chicken coop, and I don't even have to lock them up at night. <laughs> that, that's the power of stable dingoes. You are listening to Freedom of Species on 3CR 855 AM, Animal Advocacy on the Airwaves. We just heard a little bit more of my Skype interview with Adam O'Neill. Adam is an independent researcher, award-winning scientist and formal feral animal eradicator himself. He has also um, been part of creating three, I think, dingo reserves in Australia, the first of its kind in the wild. Um, He knows what he's talking about, doesn't he? Have you got any comments on what he just said? Well, to my mind, these are the people, Adam and and others like him, these are the people that government at all levels should be listening to when we start to formulate policy to how we're going to deal with these situations. When we begin to deal with, um, when we make our policy based upon Um, economic outcomes or economic drivers that self-interest groups, i.e., you know, the the, the cattle associations, different ones, you know, the the farming associations, these guys are looking at maximising their profits and this is what they're there for. Okay, so they are always looking at, at, well, how do we just get rid of the problem? Let's just get rid of it. Let's poison them, poison them, poison them, get rid of the problem. Where they're creating a problem for themselves further down the track. Mm. They're not and listening. That was obvious, wasn't it, when I think Adam referred to, actually, that you didn't even know dingoes were there. You might hear them howling. Mm. But in a sta- when you have stable dingoes in your environment, you actually mm. don't know they're there because they're, they're just looking after these, and as he said, uh, biodiversity hotspots anyway, and you don't even know because they're not around. They well, become right. more so, visible that's right. because of our 
interference with that protective ecological framework yeah, that they have as the bosses, I guess. That's right. Which, the, these are the people that we need to be listening to. and not, uh, it's, in, it's imperative that we listen to these people and get them to formulate the policy. Let's speak to the experts in these fields yeah. and get them to formulate the policy of how we're going to deal with these situations. It is interesting because there are so many experts in the field and I, I must say it becomes a very emotive topic, doesn't it? Because everyone, you know, there are diff- people really strongly believe that they're being good, you know, stewards of the land when it comes to their land, or you know, when it comes to their particular species. And it's quite, um, it, it's interesting, isn't it? You can mm. understand it getting, you know, a few tempers flaring there. But mm. we, might, it is at a time we really, we really need to change the way things are. Absolutely, I, yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. and, and what we're talking about there is, and and. Adam raised it there again. You got the situation he was talking about alternative methods when he mentions guardian animals, and there are several guardian animals that can be used in different stock situations. Down our part of the world, we've seen a massive increase in the use of alpacas and llamas and that sort of thing as guardian animals. We're seeing that amongst the sheep farmers of the Western Districts, particularly. Mm. It's, it's, I've noticed it over the last ten years at least that there's been an enormous increase, and they're embracing this situation. And marema dogs and things like that, mm. they're embracing this situation as part of the control method. People. Farmers, individual farmers, in and, and it's isolated pockets at the moment, and I guess this is the problem. We need to get these guys to start thinking of this in a national solution, and this is how we're going to approach it with these different methods. And one of those alternative methods, and I think I spoke about this um, the last time I was here, um, Sally Hall, PhD from the University of Newcastle, the work that they've been doing at the their um, veterinary medicines wing on uh, the use of a non-invasive sterilisation process. And that is that they use uh, a toxin attached to phage peptides. And what that does is it kills off uh, the reproductive cells within that individual animal, i.e. the eggs of the mammal, um, because every individual female mammal only has X amount of eggs in its life cycle. And so what it does is this toxin attaches itself to that and then kills off those germ cells. And that effectively, without harming any other cells within the body, renders that animal sterile, unable to breed. So from, I guess from, I know it's an interference with a particular animal, but from a a humane perspective, that animal then just lives out its life and passes away its natural life cycle. It it experiences no pain. There's nothing involved in that. You know, there's no hunter hunting it down and shooting it. There's no horrible slow death from a poison or anything like that. Mm. And, And this is the one of the things that needs to be looked at these guys are making great leaps ahead. They've 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 had more people come on board. Sally tells me, and you know they've there. It's a real good alternative that's starting to come its way. Still not commercially available, but their trials are going extraordinarily well. But we might need even that with the, by the sounds of it, if we have stable dingo. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah, familiar. And we do come yeah. back to that. Yeah. And, and and I guess. Look, one of the other things I wanted to quickly talk about was sure. what the down the track effects of what we're doing. If we continue to go down this path, uh, what may happen? And we're seeing it in New Zealand at the moment. Now, New Zealand is the largest user of 1080 poison in the world. They use it in enormous amounts. And they use it in indiscriminate aerial baiting drops as well. And what you're beginning to see in New Zealand now, in their fresh waterways, are traces of 1080 poison in the water itself. Can that contaminate the human supply? Like, it gets into fish, humans eat fish... That's the next point. It has been it has been identified in trout. Yeah. Okay. As well, so it can get into humans. Is that is that also through the dairy pasture? Yes. Right. Yeah. It's it's they're 
coming to a point, it seems like, and I, and I don't want to sound alarmist, but there has to be a tipping point. Yeah. You know, you can't just sure. over-toxify the environment and expect everything to just be okay. Mm. You know, and, and we don't want to get into that same situation. We want to nip that in the bud. And, and, and what we're talking about here, and we should be clear, um, if the, the research that I've done is correct, and I believe it is, to kill a human being requires only 1.6 milligrams of 1080 poison per 10 kilos of body weight. So for someone like me, who's around 80 kilos, you're talking a, a, a piece of 1080 poison of a size less than a Panadol tablet. So it's quite a small amount to go into your system and to kill you. And how big's the normal tablets that they drop? Oh, the, the, it's bathed in it. Like it might be like a carrot. They'll use like oh, a carrot okay. bait and they right. roll it in, in the powder, for instance. Right, okay. They use oats as well if they're going to target things like uh, rabbits and stuff like that. Okay. And in the case of, say, dingoes and foxes, it's a, a live meat bait and that, it's made up as a syrup and injected into it. Okay. And, and at that point, they can actually highly regulate the toxicity of what they're putting into that bait. Um I'm extremely concerned that this is what is going to happen, that if we continue down this path without going back to what exactly what Adam and others, Arian and Ernest, these guys are talking about, without going back to allowing these situations where we allow a stable dingo population to be there and let the environment in that instance take care of itself, then we are going to end up in a tipping point as well Mm. because it is a Schedule 7 poison. It's the highest rating in the world. And there are an enormous amount of very, very strict regulations surrounding it. We can only control what the human species does with those regulations in the use of that bait. Foxes, dingoes, birds, quolls, any species that you want to name that can come into contact with a bait, we can't control what they do with that bait. Foxes cache baits. They take them and they move them. These animals... Can pick, a bird can pick up a bait and fly for kilometres and drop it into an urban backyard. We cannot control that. When we begin to poison our environment with situa- with poisons like this, we can only lay the poison. We can't control what happens yeah, to sure. it. To, to think we can mm. is hubris in the extreme. Which leads us to the fact that you know a lot of companion animals get killed in a, you know, in, by 1080, last year we had a few farmers on the program who experienced the tragic death of their companion working dogs and mm. that's what they witnessed that mm. torture and that is what stopped them in their steps and they stopped using 1080 on their property. So, one, we, you know, the welfare side of it and the hum- humaneness is just we spoke about before, but it's enlargening your compassion to all these other species Mm. that we must do as well. And secondly, it's not control. It's It's interesting to use control. Like it's ironic, isn't it? We think we're controlling a situation. Oh, my God, goodness, these endangered species, we've got to kill all the wild dogs quick. And there's no control. It's just a complete, you know, it's silly. Very much so, very much so. But you also, you know speak about this transition that we need to do and obviously lots of minds have got together and make decisions about this transition and we're not transitioning back to a certain point in time where we want our ecology to be that's another thing that a lot of people like Ken Thompson and a lot of ecologists are talking about we can't you know keep wanting this parcel of land to look like an arbitrary you know how it looked 10 years ago Mm. or how it looked 
a thousand years ago because then you get, you know, how far back do you go? Where mm. do you go? What's mm. the ideal? We're always changing, aren't we? Mm-hmm. The, the environment's always changing. And there's a lot better people to talk about it much more articulately than me. So I won't go <laughs> on to that because I get a bit excited about it. But the transition itself, realistically, in the current state is a big one. It must be a scary place to be yes. when you've got... It, to make that jump, you know, to go, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to handle this land differently. I'm going to leave those wild dogs alone. Mm. That is where Adam has been um, as a land manager for many years for a predator-friendly cattle station. Mm. Um, so, and he made that judgment, and in a surprisingly short time, he stabilised the dingo population and the predation on livestock decreased dramatically like wow yeah like amazing and that look that is i must say part of a larger interview which i which i will air in Mm. full because it's well worth listening to again but we may unless you've got comments on that just listen to a little bit more of adam's wrap up okay sure yeah we need to provide a few good examples of where dingoes can recover their numbers i mean i before i was uh referring to an Arizona situation where they need a huge area to stabilise because they have such large territories, you know, the reach of persecution. But in areas like, you know, the, up and down the eastern seaboard, you wouldn't need that much. You know, a couple of thousand square k's would be plenty. And particularly if uh, all of the surrounding pastoralists adopted the uh, management strategy of using uh, guardian animals to protect their livestock rather than baiting, in time, you would see that the predation rate would go right down anyway, and these people wouldn't even need their dogs once the dingoes restabilize and they learn respect for human property the way that it is around here. As I said, you know, you talk to any of the locals around here, and dingoes aren't even on their mind because they're never seen and there's no problems, but, but they're here in force. We never get any problems with eruptions of pigs or deer or kangaroos or rabbits. Everything is kept in balance. You know, there's no foxes here. I mean, there would be. There would be, you know, you never see them, but foxes, cats and dingoes can coexist and they will always coexist. I mean, they're a part of, they're an integral part of the ecosystem now. All invasive species are. But what's important here is to reinstate, you know, the top order predator to make sure everybody stays honest. And, uh, and this just isn't happening anywhere on the continent right now. And we really need to, uh, to, sh- to see this happen somewhere. The importance of the apex predator covers a lot of other issues. That we don't need to get bogged down in that nativism argument of what's native, what's feral, what's, you know, they're all very distracting, futile arguments to have. If we could all focus the energy on reinstating our dingo, it seems that it would, would solve a lot of problems. It's not only distracting, you know, this focus on invasives is not distracting, it's just very destructive. And uh, in my opinion, you know, this 10A baiting attack on uh, invasives is actually driving the extinction process. I mean, you look, it's just not sustainable. I mean, we've been doing it for 30 years and we haven't had a single success yet, but we still persevere with it. You know, we just think, oh, well, we haven't got the, quite the right bait yet. You know, we need, we need something a little bit more target specific or, uh, you know, we've got to do it a bit more often. We need to intensify our efforts. We've got to do bigger areas, but, you know, just, they're just thinking along the wrong lines. You know, we've got to go back to basics. I mean, and this is basic ecology, you know, it's uh, grade two stuff predator-prey dynamics, 
and it works. I mean, uh, nature will take care of itself. We've just got to leave it to its own devices. And as I said, the biggest problem right now with conservationists is that we've got no examples to demonstrate that. You know, after our five-year search for dingo utopia, we just gave up. We decided that the only way to actually conduct a reliable study is to go out and develop our own dingo community, which we did. We went out into the middle of the Simpson Desert and put in a bore and established a dingo community, you know, away from the reach of anyone that uh, decides they want to kill them. And, and so that's the extent that we had to go to just to conduct research. So, uh, I mean, trying to find anywhere, you know, in productive pastoral country or forested country, you know, it's, it's just not happening. Dingoes just aren't stable anywhere. We need to provide that. We need to be looking at this question seriously because we've been flogging this dead horse for 30 years and uh, it's just not going to get up. Baiting doesn't work. You are listening to 3CR 855 AM Freedom of Species and that was the final uh, little talk from Adam O'Neill. Any comments, Andy? I think what seems obvious to everybody is that what we're currently doing isn't working. You can't draw any other conclusion. What Adam's doing works. The proof is in the pudding. And again, I say we need to legislate. We need to get the people like Adam and the others like him in the place where they can formulate this policy and make the change. Now, in addition to that, I'd like to bring pressure to bear on the Agriculture Minister, Barnaby Joyce. There is a petition out there uh, called Rex's Petition. You can It's been put up on change.org by Marilyn Nuski, uh, lawyer, and you can uh, access that through Facebook links, etc., as well, if you want. And I encourage all Australians to, to sign that. And I just quickly would like to read out, because if you put aside all of the other things that we've just been speaking about and just base it on that we need to ban this poison from a humane perspective, this, what I'm about to read out to you, is what happened to Rex, and this is what will happen to every animal. On Wednesday, the 2nd of April 2014, my wife woke me up at about 9pm saying the dogs were fighting in the yard. She thought our dog Rex had jumped out. I found Rex after going outside under the trailer, running around under it, hitting into the axles. He was in great distress. His pupils were huge. He was howling loudly and would not come when called. He could not be consoled or tempted out from under the trailer. Running, screaming, bashing into things, he wouldn't stop. Eventually he did. He dropped to the floor and went stiff. All his legs went stiff and his tail went stiff. He just lay there having a seizure on the grass. After a while, he got back up again, continued on with running into things, screaming, yelping. I noticed his bowel movements uh, were uncontrollable. He died in incredible pain. Eventually, he just lay there and didn't get up. Then we realised he was gone. This is the fate that awaits any animal that ingests 1080 poison, and we need to get rid of it, and we need to get rid of it now. Thank you very much, Andy, for joining us in the studio today. Thank you, Kate Gracie, for being in the power seat. Pleasure. And... Um, I'd like to thank very much Adam O'Neill as well from the Dingo for Biodiversity Project and the musicians Rodrigo and Gabriella, who we played uh, quite a bit of their music called Nature's Way and I believe they that tune was called Nature's Way but it's they had help from Oyston Grenny. I've probably pronounced that completely incorrectly. But thank you very much. If you'd like to contact us, please do on info at freedomofspecies.org, Facebook twitter or the website and we will hear a little bit more from rodrigo and gabriella thanks for tuning in
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.